Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing two topics. First, the precipitous decline in the value of cryptocurrencies and what it might tell us in terms of its broader cultural and political implications. And second, the conservative transformation of the American judiciary and the insights and lessons that one might derive from that development, which, which most would have viewed as improbable only a couple of decades ago. David, thank you for joining me as always. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and listeners are not going to believe this, but these two topics are going to prove closely linked and not just randomly selected. <laughs> Let's start with cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin has lost about 35% of its value so far in 2022. Coinbase's stock is down 30%. And stablecoin, which is supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, has fallen to something like 30 cents on the dollar. Help me understand what's going on here. What do you think is behind this sudden change in the market? Well, let me start by saying something positive about cryptocurrency. I, I'm, I'm a cryptocurrency skeptic of um, the most militant kind, but I want to start by saying something positive. The acceptance by so many people, primarily on the political right, of um, cryptocurrency is a huge mental advance over the previous conservative infatuation with gold. That the, the gold delusion was based on the idea that, that money must be a thing. Um, crypto at least takes the step to un understand that currency is an invention of the human mind. And gold, is, gold has no intrinsic value. It's just a, it's a piece of rock. Um, People, it, it is valuable because cho people choose to believe it's valuable, just as the, as the piece of paper is valuable. I mean, the, the pa there's no more paper in a $20 note than a $5 note, and yet one is worth four times as much as the other, even though they're identical thing, because we all the meaning in a currency is attributed. So the cryptocurrency is a, you, ha you have moved to a more sophisticated mental state when you can understand that something like that could be a currency. But the evil in cryptocurrency um, was that cryptocurrency began as a project to separate money from the state. And that cannot be done. Um, and it must end badly. Um, and, and it reflected a basically the adolescent outlook of uh, 
um, the libertarian mind, which wants all the benefits of living in a society, all the benefits of state protection, and accepts none of the responsibilities and none of the detriments. I mean, there's not, there's not every, there is no free lunch. There are negatives that come with, with the existence of states. And so they sort of, if we could sort of, you know, you know, the economists joke, uh, they have a can and they can't figure out how to open it, assume a can opener. So libertarians tend to assume, well, what if people outside states behaved in the way that they would with a state, but minus the state? Um, so a currency, yes, it's a product of the human mind. It has to be backed by a sovereign of some kind. And it has to be regulated in some way. Um, if you don't have those things, then your currency simply becomes a token that is manipulated by bad actors in the marketplace. And that's that's what's happened. And I, I think with Bitcoin, at one point, it went as high as into the $40,000 range. There was talk it might be worth $100,000. Um, it's now $26,000. There's no reason it shouldn't be $26 or $0.26 cents, uh, because it, it doesn't connect to anything. And it was essentially an option on a certain kind of ideology about what the nature of human community is. And it is as powerful or as unpowerful as, as that idea. Um, there's going to be a lot of, of, of grief on the way. Uh, but I think one of the things that we have really seen is, can you imagine if this were an actual currency? The whole point of a currency is you want stable value. You want neither inflation nor deflation. We had, in, in the later part of the 19th century, gold became much more valuable in real terms, because basically because the... Atlantic economies all grew in North America and in Europe, and the gold base did not grow as fast as those economies did. And so there was constant downward price pressure from basically the end of the American Civil War until the 1890s. And that led to terrible political disturbance all over the world. It led to the long depression of the 1870s and 1880s. By the way, it, it, I, have a, I won't take time now, but it led to the end of voting rights for black Americans because what the year that the United States went back onto a money base, 1873, led to a terrible economic downturn, which led to the Democrats recapturing the House of Representatives in 1874, which led to the end of um, Reconstruction, the end of the protection of civil liberties and voting rights for black Americans in the newly liberated South. So these consequences are real. But the promise of Bitcoin was we will, if, if Bitcoin was to be a good investment, go from nothing to $30,000 to $100,000, then it meant it would be the most deflationary currency in the history of the world. It would be to deflation what the Weimar Deutschmark was to inflation. Who wants to live in that world? It was intrinsically stupid. And politicians who um, link their careers, their countries to Bitcoin, as the crazy president of El Salvador did, were, were driving their countries to national and individual bankruptcy. Um, there's a lot there, David. Let me pick up the point about the connection between cryptocurrencies and the political right. Why do you think some conservatives in Canada and the United States have been drawn to cryptocurrencies? I'll ask you to elaborate on the kind of ideological attraction. Yeah, well, to some degree, it was opportunistic, right? There's a certain kind of person who was attracted to cryptocurrency, um, male, younger, disaffected from institutions, not ideologically libertarian, but suspicious of institutions, the Joe Rogan listener, also the kind of person who'd be suspicious of vaccines, because how could a doctor be smarter about, you know, you know, if you, if you take steroids and work, pump, pump a lot of iron, that's all the healthcare you need, right? So that audience was there. And many politicians looked at it and said, that is a potential constituency that could be pulled into a conservative world, probably their fathers are in the conservative world. So I will talk about what they're interested in, as a way of, of attracting them to my cause. 
But there, there, is, there was an ideological affinity because it goes to the idea that the institutions of government can't be trusted. And this is what's going to lead us to a discussion of, of judges. The institutions of government can't be trusted. And so therefore, we will hypothesize that this spontaneous order outside of government, but that depends on the benefits of government, that somehow that, that can be made to work better. And that is, that's an illusion that appeals to a certain kind of ideological mindset. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you about that point. You know, that is how much of, of it do you think is motivated by a genuine critique of our central banks causing the inflation that they're now struggling to get under control? In other words, how much is the interest in crypto part of perhaps an ill-directed but legitimate frustration with yet another failing of an elite institution? Yeah. Well, it was driven I, I think a lot of the attraction to crypto was driven by the ultra low interest rates of the middle 2010s. And people then went looking for higher returns. And when people in a low interest rate environment go looking for higher uh, returns, they're attracted to all kinds of manias and speculative um, delusions. But I want to say that I I think the behavior of central banks over the past 12 years is one of the outstanding success stories of political institutions. And that this is an example of, of, again, the adolescent nature of this kind of critique. In 2007, 2008, the world economy was heading toward the severest depression since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Which all that meant, not just for human suffering, but for political instability and wars. Because when you get a Great Depression, you get maybe not in a country like Canada or the United States, where with its deep history, but in more marginal countries, you can you can have a collapse. You know, and I wrote when I Victor Orban owes much of his rise to power in Hungary to the aftermath of the Great Recession. He's he comes to power in 2010. Uh, so th- these shocks have real costs. So the central banks and others cushioned this. They didn't cause the crisis. The crisis was caused by failures elsewhere in the financial system, regulatory failures, the failure to police the uh, derivative market. But it was the central banks who had to cope with it, and they coped splendidly. Um, that What happened in 2008, 2009 was one of the greatest success stories of government in our lifetimes. And uh, we had a, a nasty recession and a slow recovery, but we didn't have a worldwide second Great Depression. And that's an incredible achievement. Uh, and they did it by pumping enormous amounts of liquidity into the into the system. And that had ill effects, just as any medicine. There is no medicine without side effects. Uh, the medicine is better than death, uh, but the medicine is not cost-free. So to, we, you save the patient. Now you have to deal with some of the side effects. And the side effects were there was a period of, of, of too much liquidity. You had asset bubbles of various kinds. Among the assets that went into the bubble were government bonds, so you had low returns. So investors went looking for other kinds of returns, and they then got hornswoggled by by the crypto foolishness. But the project of draining the liquidity out of the system then ran into the second shock of, this time not a non-financial shock, it ran into the pandemic, a real-world shock. And so the central banks, before they had successfully extracted all the excess liquidity from the system, as they would have done over the years after 2015 or 16, now had to do another administration. So yeah, we went to this period, and that's why we have inflation now. We had a period of two, two periods in a row of massive liquidity injection in order to deal with real shocks where inflation always better than deflation. If you are a central banker and you have to make that mistake, you know, and you know you can't get it right, deflate inflation, you can tidy up. Inflation, you know, it's inconvenient, but deflation wrecks societies. And uh, a mild inflation is, is not so burdensome. Even the mildest deflation is terribly hard as most people are debtors. 
And a mild, a mild deflation means that the burden of debt becomes ever more crushing. That's why there's so much unhappiness about student. If, if the student loan business has become such an issue in this period of, you know, um, as as the central banks were pulling out liquidity, that's that people were finding their debts were becoming more burdensome to them. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Well, we've just been talking about elite institutions. Permit me if I shift the topic to the U.S. judiciary. Listeners and viewers will know, David, that the U.S. Supreme Court is set to make an historic ruling on abortion rights later this summer. What they may not appreciate, though, is how a multi-decade incremental and institutional effort on the part of the federal society has transformed the U.S. judiciary, and in so doing, made such a ruling possible. I don't want to talk about abortion rights. Um, Instead, I'd like your thoughts on American conservatives' efforts to shift the center of gravity in the judiciary and what, if any, lessons it provides for confronting the leftward shift of other mainstream institutions, such as business, the media, universities, and so on. Well, uh, I'll put some personal cards on the table here because some disclosures probably are relevant here. I I was president of the Harvard Law School chapter of the Federalist Society um, in the academic year 86, 87, 1986, 1987. Um, And I was active in the Federalist Society for some time after that. And of course, um, I was very active in the movement that caused President George W. Bush to drop the Harriet Myers nomination and thus got Samuel Alito on the court. Now, I did all of that as a legal and judicial conservative who was also never strict pro-lifer. Um, I, I've always, all through my life, believed that while abortion needed to be regulated, and it, abortion involved many equities and not not only um, the interests of, of the woman who had the abortion, her equity had to be paramount, and you needed to have some form of, some way to access legal abortion. I've always believed that. But I rec- people say, well, how could you believe those two things? And I said, well, because first, there's more to law than just this one legal issue. And secondly, that one of the premises of the opposition to Roe versus Wade as a decision in the United States was getting rid of Roe versus Wade doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of abortion. It means returning abortion to political debate. And I think what we're going to see right now is I think it's really possible that you could have a, a way to stabilize the outcome because the end of Roe versus Wade is inviting Republicans and conservatives to overreach on abortion in all kinds of ways that are just grotesque. You know, when you have governors of states who are asked the question, will you restrict the freedom of women in your state to travel? And they say, that question is premature, or I don't want to go into that right now, or I have no present plans to do so. That's, that's not how you answer that question. You know, absolutely. Are you crazy? No, no. Who would do that? I'm not going to record any person of any, you know, male, female, what, any third option. No, we don't write, you know, uh, uh, don't insult me with this question. They're, they're not saying it that way. <laughs> like, like, uh, not at this time. So what is going to happen is many Republican jurisdictions are going to go for mad, offensive, overbearing, intrusive, misogynistic overreach. And they are going to get slapped back. They're going to get slapped back real hard. And the, I think the hope is better 
for some kind of restabilization of the society, some kind of abortion solution that the country could live with. And the analogy I use a lot on abortion is the 19th century debate over alcohol. And that from the 1890s uh, until the 1920s, probably it was probably the single most divisive issue in the United States. And just so many state and local elections turned on it. Um, and then finally, the restrictionists won. They won. They got a constitutional amendment. They got, they got to try what they wanted to do. And the country got to experience what the prohibitionists wanted to do. And that was the end. I mean, it took a while. It took a dozen years. But the prohibition system collapsed. And that was the end of it. And, and not only that, we now have a, a, an alcohol. And people, the idea that alcohol once tore the country apart is a, but we now have an alcohol equilibrium that most Americans can live with. And, uh, and I think that's what I hope we will get to with, with abortion in this new world, um, is that we will get to an equilibrium caused by conservatives winning a round, but always being mindful that no political victory lasts forever. David, the reason I ask about um, the Federal Society's institutional efforts to, in effect, infiltrate and change the center of gravity in a mainstream institution is that there is presently a view among some conservatives that they either need to confront these institutions with brute political force or withdraw from them altogether. Doesn't the Federalist Society example suggest a third option, which is organization, ideas, and ultimately persuasion? I think that's right. And I think you're absolutely right. And the two alternatives you create, one is the idea of withdrawal means you just become a, a sect and that you, you talk to yourself, you lose, you lose even the understanding of other people, you lose any ability to participate in politics, you just, you just w- withdraw. And that, that's a sign of a truly defeated collection of ideas. The, the second, which is very much the current mentality of American conservatives, is we are going to use state power to impose our will on the society. Well, good luck. That in the United States, where the political system is not very representative, it is going to be possible for a while for an organized minority to impose its will by state power on a recalcitrant majority. But it is a democratic system deep down. And, so, and, and um, as the prohibitionists discovered in the 1920s, that um, it's not going to work and it's going to invite a backlash. And I think we're going to see that with abortion. I think we're, uh, we're going to see that in all kinds of ways. And the politicians who are right now, you know, politicians like Rick DeSantis, the governor, Ron DeSantis, I beg your pardon, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis in Florida, who is waging this war on Disney, he could have gone to the country in 2024 as the, you know, tough, maybe unlovely, maybe unlovable, but tough-minded governor who kept the schools open when other governors closed them. He kept the schools open not only in the 21 school year, but in the 2020 school year, a decision that turned out to be resoundingly correct at a time when other people were making decisions that were resoundingly wrong. That's a good story to take to the country. So now now he's going to run as America's leading anti-gay crusader in a country where that's an issue of interest to maybe a, a fifth of the population. And they have this idea, well, people don't like some of the stuff that's happening with some of this gender expression in the schools. And I, I think that's right. Probably most parents don't like that. You know what parents also don't like? They don't like weirdos who seem obsessed with this issue. There's, a, there's an old joke about um, the rally in Union Square in lower Manhattan. There are the communists on one side of the square, and then a bunch of social Democrats appear on the other side of the square for a counter-demonstration. The police arrive, and they start clubbing everybody and arresting them, putting them into the station wagons, into the police cars. And one of the uh, social Democrats who's being clubbed on the head says, no, you don't understand. I'm an anti-communist. And the policeman replies, I don't care what kind of communist you are. You're going downtown. 
And, and there's something about that, which is, you know, I'm, I'm on your side of this obsessive attention to sexuality among underage children. You know what? You're still a weirdo. Yeah, and it seems to me um, that there's something perverted about fighting for viewpoint neutrality by, in effect, using the state to fight for the opposite of, of viewpoint neutrality. The, the other, I think, par- parents want a governor who parents want a governor who's laser focused on keeping the schools open and getting the math scores up. That's your job. Uh, they, oh, they, and, oh, maybe winning some football trophies, but above all, keep the schools open, get the math scores up, and this other stuff is just boutique, and you don't look like a leader of a state when you are focused on an issue that would normally be a cons- be of concern for a small number of state legislators. The other thing that makes the, the Federalist Society example notable, it seems to me, David, is that it, it represents a rejection in a way of populism and an affirmation of a more dispassionate and even elite means of shifting the center of gravity of ideas and politics. The transformation of the judiciary is a story of institutionalists like Anton Scalia, not reactionaries like Steve Bannon. And so what lessons should conservatives be deriving from this experience where they're at a moment on the cusp of, you know, whatever viewers or listeners think about this issue, a major historic conservative rollback of Roe versus Wade? I think there, I, I can imagine how a lot of viewers are hearing this. And one of the things they need to understand is that the Federalist Society project was always a modest project from the point of view of the whole society. It was ambitious for the law, but it was modest for the society. That is, the, the, the argument was always, we want to do some things that might seem radical in the legal context, but that's not the end of the discussion, because what we want to do is say, these are not legal matters at all, that there are lots of things that courts were doing that federal said, look, I personally may even agree with the more conservative side, but I'm willing to take my chances in political debate. And so there, there are all these issues where the courts need to stick to their core business. I mean, the, the, the main job of courts is resolving disputes between individual parties in society. They are not superintendents of the legislative process, and, and they have to be very limited in, in how they do that. Well, David, that was a fascinating conversation as always. Thanks for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.